evening, everybody. You're all very welcome to the lexicon for tonight's talk, entitled My Grandfather and Oscar Wilde, a talk by Anne McCower. And today, as many of you will know, it commemorates the date of death of Oscar Wilde. It was the 30th of November, 1900, I think. But anyway, we're delighted to have Anne here with us today. As many of you in the audience will know, uh, it's been wonderful working with Anne and Christopher on their exhibition entitled All Right on the Night, which is upstairs on level three. It launched on the 22nd of October and will in fact move up to level four um, towards, it's the 8th of December and it'll be there until the end of January. So plenty of opportunity to see it if you haven't already. But just to let you know that if some of your friends can't travel in, it, the, the exhibition is available online under our exhibitions. And you can also listen to the lovely interview that Vincent Woods did with Anne and Christopher. That's, that's playing all the time upstairs, but you can look, look at it at home on our YouTube channel, the DLR YouTube. So if you can't find either of those, let me know and I can take your email and send you the links. Um, so it's great to be able to access it at home as well as here. So I'm sure most of you in the audience know Anne, and um, Anne has worked in RTE from the very beginning. I won't go back to her earlier life because I know she'll be covering a lot of that today, but she has produced most of the, the classical music programmes in RTE over the years since the 1960s until she retired in the late 1990s. Um, she's a soprano, she performed for many, many years in oratorio and recital, and we're absolutely thrilled to have her here tonight. She has lectured widely on James Joyce and other topics uh, to do with music over the years. So we're really thrilled to have this special occasion with Anne tonight. So please give her a warm welcome. Thank you. Well, Marion has gone and pinched my opening line. <laughs> Never mind, we'll go on. Um, you all know anyway quite a lot about Oscar Wilde and I'm not really here to talk about him so much as my grandfather. Who was my grandfather? Who the heck? Well, he was Stanley Victor Macau, and he was born in 1872, died in 1911. He was a writer, lived in London, and was also a musician and I'm afraid to say, a music critic. And he wrote articles for The Times and also The Telegraph. And I think he wrote a kind of history of The Times as well, though I haven't been able to lay my hands on it. He also wrote two biographies, three novels, and contributed to the famous quarterly, The Yellow Book. Now, he knew many of the writers and artists of that famous and infamous circle of the naughty 90s. People like Max Beerbohm, Aubrey Beardsley, the artists Charles Conder, Charles Ricketts, Walter and Oswald Sickert, and the editor of The Yellow Book, Henry Harland. He also knew Oscar Wilde but more of that anon. First, I must give you some idea of who was Stanley Macauer. Where did he come from? 
The Makowas were Jewish, originating in the little Polish town of Makow, which is about 90 kilometers northeast of Warsaw, near the Russian border, in fact. The story starts with my great, 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 great grandfather, Abraham. His wife died, leaving several small children. Eventually, he married again. And one day, Jacob, my three greats grandfather, came home from school, looked in through the window, and saw his father kissing his new mother. He was so upset that he decided then and there to run away from home, which he did. As he was walking along the road, he was overtaken by a man driving a horse cart. His name was Jolovitz. He offered him a lift and Jakob accepted. They journeyed for something like 150 kilometers until they reached the man's hometown of Santomizl, which is now Zaniemizl. It is in northwest Poland, kind of near Poznan or Posen. The Jolovitzes took him in to live with them. When he grew up, he married Glückian, one of the daughters, and they had six children. It was not easy being a Jew in Poland and to give his son Moritz the best chance in life. Jacob sent him to Berlin for his education to the French school. <clears throat> Having done well there, Moritz took himself off to France and became apprentice in a silk firm. Having learnt all he could, he went to London and set up the firm of Macauer Silks in rivalry to Courtaulds. When Rayon came in, Courtaulds jumped at this new material. But Macauer said, no, this newfangled fabric will never sell. That's why you've all heard of Courtaulds and nobody's heard of Macauer. Except for those in the business who know that the beautiful fabric used for Princess Diana's wedding dress was supplied by Makawa. So there. <laughs> in due course, Moritz's son, Ernest, took over the business. His brother, Stanley, did not join the family firm. He was drawn to the arts. He went to Cambridge, and then, to please his father, he studied law at Lincoln's Inn and was called to the bar. But it didn't really suit him. And by his own admission, he always saw the point of view of the other man and thus was not much use to his own client. So he made a living of sorts by music criticism and other journalism. He gave piano lessons as well as taking lessons himself in harmony. He wrote songs. He and his friend Dalhousie Young set many of Herrick's verses to music, which they called their Herricals. He played the piano at musical evenings. These were often at the Sickert's house in Kensington, where the Sickert's had a strange method of making tea, insisting that theirs was the only way of ensuring a good brew. 
the pourer would climb a ladder to the height of the ceiling and pour the boiling water from this height into the teapot on the floor. At some stage, Stanley converted to Catholicism. He married a Swiss girl who was also a Roman Catholic, Agnes Brugger, my grandmother. They first met when the Macaws were spending a family holiday at the Crown Hotel in Kurwalden in Switzerland, where Agnes's father was the manager. Stanley was 13 and Agnes was six. The relationship developed rather later, I think, and in spite of Herr Brugger's opposition to a nearly penniless writer for his daughter. But Stanley had great charm and it was a love match. They married in 1904 and set up home in London in a house in Brook Green in Hammersmith. They had four children, three girls and my father, Anthony, who was the second child. They then expanded into a house in Chiswick, the back half of which was a convent. The nuns used to be spotted peeking out at these lively children enjoying the freedom of a large garden. I remember my grandmother Agnes very well. She was a constant presence in our lives as children, but Stanley I never knew, for in 1911 disaster struck. Stanley died of pernicious anemia. In those days, it was incurable, unlike now, and he was ill for a long time. His brother, Ernest, head of the family firm, sent him a load of straw to put down in the street outside the house to soften the harsh noise of the carts and carriages on the rough surface of the road, before the days of Mr. Dunlop, of course, and even Mr. Tar McAdam. Stanley thanked him. Dear Ernest, in the old days, when our broom of a sudden ceased rumbling on its way to the theater, there was a hush, and one of us said, somebody is very ill. Yes, I used to think to myself, and a jolly rich somebody, probably the Duke of Portland, I don't know why I fixed on him. That straw must have cost at least 50 to 100 pounds. And then the rumbling began again cheerfully and we resumed our chatter. I never thought of the straw on the road again till the other day when you achieved your immortal triumph, turning a murmured aspiration into a substantial reality in the flash of a pan. Well, do you hear the carts, said Agnes, standing by my bedside? They're putting it down now. But I had only conceived the possibility five, ten, how many minutes ago? Ernest achieved his master coup for on-the-spottishness, I reflected. He'll never outdo that. The nursing is excellent. The sister of St. Vincent's splendid, such fun, and a thoroughly experienced hand, too. By the way, I must tell you that I did enjoy the Krug a great deal at first, especially as a good pull-up at 5 a.m. in the morning, my weakest time. 
Nurse Dover is a bright, active young woman with fine qualities. She is an awful chatterbox, but she knows it and does her best. The sister is perfect, so merry. I'm still on my back, have to be fed with everything, and write this by cocking up my knees. In the hottest weather, they sponged me every hour with the hottest water I could bear, nearly boiling. I hope to goodness the great heat will not return. Your copy of Bleak House arrived when I was neither in a state to hold or read the volume, which is very fat, but very attractive. I can't read on my back. It tires me too much. And in his final letter, Dear Ernest, I should like to see you so much, but they won't let me sit up, and if I talk much, I grow faint, and to you, I should want to talk a great deal. So it seems pretty hopeless at present until I am stronger. The straw was your greatest coup for promptitude, and oh, if you knew what it meant to me, I shall never forget the relief of that night. Stanley died at the age of 39. His most acclaimed writing was his first novel, The Mirror of Music, which had been published by John Lane in 1895 with a cover by Aubrey Beardsley. It is written in the form of a diary and therefore in the first person by a young woman who is an aspiring pianist, but who has, as we say nowadays, a mental health problem and is becoming more and more fragile. Much use is made of bars of music printed in the text, particularly from Beethoven's Kreutzer Sonata for violin and piano, which she plays with the violinist with whom she becomes increasingly fixated. That sounds awful, but it's a strange original work written in a style very much of the time of the 90s. Oscar Wilde had been taken by it and wrote to Stanley from Naples, where he was staying with Lord Alfred Douglas after his release from prison. 22nd of September, 1897. My dear Stanley, I think your book intensely interesting, a most subtle analysis of the relations between music and the soul. I know of nothing else in literature where this motif is treated with anything like your skill of analysis and power of presentation. It is a very remarkable book and should be translated into French. I wish you would send a copy to Henry Davray, 13 Avenue d'Orléans, Paris. He has just translated Meredith's essay on comedy for the Mercure de France, and is a charming fellow besides being a good English scholar. Hope you are writing more. How is dear Oswald, that's Oswald Sickett, younger brother of the artist Walter Sickett. I often think of those charming days on which I saw you both. You were so sweet and nice to me. I intend to winter here if all goes well. I love the place. 
It is, to me, full of Dorian and Ionian airs. My poem I have not yet sent off. That's the ballad of Reading Jail. And I find it difficult to capture the mood and manner of its inception. It seems alien to me now. Real passions so soon become unreal. And the actual facts of one's life take different shape and remould themselves strangely. Still, it must be finished. Then I turn to the drama. I hope you will still write to me a line sometime to tell me of your work and yourself and that Oswald will do the same. My address will be always Sebastian Melmoth. Sincerely yours, Oscar Wilde. On the 2nd of October, Lord Alfred Douglas wrote to Stanley, Dear Mr. McCower, Oscar Wilde thinks that you would like the enclosed sonnet about Mozart and wants me to send it to you at the risk of boring you very much. I do so. Of course, it should be headed by the whole of the first 13 bars of the trio in question, but I was too lazy to write it all out. I must tell you I have read your book, The Mirror of Music, and thought it quite wonderful. I have read no book so good for a very long time. Believe me, yours truly, Alfred Douglas. Bose's flowery poem, full of these and thous, was criticised by Stanley in the spirit in which he assumed it had been sent. In reply came a letter from Oscar. My dear Stanley, Alfred Douglas has shown me your letter to him with its nice message to me. The hope you express that my poem will be published without designs or drawings will be fulfilled. It is to be brought out at two and sixpence, quite simply. Later on, if the poem is a success, I hope to have an edition illustrated. I have a longing for visible symbols to interpret my realism in the spirit in which I think it is informed. He's referring to the ballad of Reading Jail, of course. The rest of your letter, however, pained me and distressed me a good deal because it showed that you did not understand or appreciate in the very smallest way the reason why he sent you his sonnet on Mozart. He was charmed and fascinated by much in your book which I lent him, and wrote to you to express his pleasure in your work, and as a sign of his pleasure in it, sent you a sonnet of his own, not as a corpse for a callous dissecting table, but as a flower to gild one grey moment in a London day. He is a little in years and a little in literature, your senior. His beautiful book of poems was published, I think, some time before your novel. And his poems place him at once quite in the front of all the young poets of England. I know no young poet who is any way his equal or even near to him. And the elder poets are, of course, or concours through their mediocrity and the harsh music of their hoarse throats. So for you to take upon yourself to pull his sonnet 
to bits, to reconstruct it, while admitting yourself that you have no knowledge of this form of poetry was unnecessary as unasked. Nor was so intrusive a recklessness really atoned for by your concluding remark that in spite of everything, you considered the poem full of promise. Full of promise is an expression quite meaningless in even the most elementary art criticism. As regards the unknown friend whose standard of poetry is so high that he will not publish, I am sorry to find this antiquated type, if he exists, reappearing in modern life. I was in hopes that he had disappeared as completely as he has been found out. There is no instance I know of in literature of any good poet who did not publish his work. I see in the self-restraint of the supposed high standard merely the self-restraint of the impotent and the chastity of the eunuch. Had you read and admired Alfred Douglas's volume of poems and sent him your own book as a present, you would, believe me, have received a more gracious answer than the one you have sent him. I may say finally that Alfred Douglas was merely amused at your letter. The one who was pained was myself, as I had the pleasure, and it was a great pleasure, of knowing you personally and had often spoken to him about you. And it was a grief to me to find that even without meaning it, you could be ungracious and lacking in recognition of a charming compliment from a poet of the highest distinction. Sincerely yours, Oscar Wilde. <clears throat> well, Stanley must have replied with a letter of well-calculated grovel for Oscar's next letter to him from the Villa Giudice Posilippo on the 14th of October was, my dear Stanley, you have borne my bombshell with sweetness of temper and delightful resignation. I felt sure you would. Indeed, I would not have written to you so strongly had I not been sure that you would understand the whole thing and accept it as you have done. We will now think no more and talk no more of what in its origin was a mere misunderstanding on your part. <laughs> I am awaiting typewritten proofs of my poem from Smithers, after which I hope in a short time to see it published. I am also supervising an Italian version of Salome, which is being made here by a young Italian poet I hope to produce it on the stage here. If I can find an actress of troubling beauty and flute-like voice. Unfortunately, most of the tragic actresses of Italy, with the exception of Dusa, are stout ladies. And I don't think I could bear a stout Salome. Sincerely yours, Oscar Wilde. Three years later, in 1900, Oscar was dead at the age of 46. He had included Stanley's name on the list of his friends who were to receive copies of the special signed and numbered edition of the Ballad of Reading Jail. 
1910, when Stanley himself was gravely ill, one F.W.W., probably a pub publisher called Frederick White, whom he knew, asked Stanley to set down on paper his reminiscences of his first meeting with Oscar for posterity. Well, posterity, here it is, 13 years ago. An evening in Dieppe recalled at the request of F.W.W. You ask me, my friend, to tell you what I remember of a certain summer evening in 1897. Sadness and a sense of age creep over me as I put back the clock of my life for you. The 90s, near as they are still in the calendar of time, recede swiftly into something barely tangible, something singularly remote from one who looks back at them for memories across the gulf that divides youth and middle age, for it is a gulf that the closest diary can never span. Thirteen years ago, each dawn was a matter for fresh wonder. The very air held promise of the unexpected happening. Nothing bore the grey uniform so familiar in later years of the impossible. The mind roamed over boundless plains of high thinking, secure from the intrusion of indiscreet probabilities. One lived luxurious days. Like some new comet, at once a picture and a puzzle to the spectator gazing heavenwards, the yellow book hung bright, defiant, in the zenith of its course. The magazine issued quarterly from the bodily head was a bright enough little comet, if you like. But the sinister brilliance of a neighboring star took some of the shine out of it for all but the most experienced gazers. Oscar Wilde and the Yellow Book had nothing in common, save this, that Harland edited the one and was kind to the other. As you will see when I have told you of that evening in the summer of 1897. It was the year in which Oscar Wilde came out of prison after 18 months of hard labor. Somebody asked me if I would care to meet him as I stood outside a cafe in the main street of Dieppe where I was spending a holiday. To refuse would have been to take sides with merry, shameless, philistine little Dieppe which had only to become aware of his presence to turn a cold shoulder. It is true he was allowed to be there, but he was never sure that the general allowance would be extended to any particular public place to which he might entrust himself. Impropriety was well enough in Dieppe, but the size of his scandal was out of all proportion with the size of this town. Hotel proprietors had to look after their own interests. The season was short and the sentiments of visitors must be respected. Public opinion, heavily backed in this instance, as in so many others, was inexorable so far as it went. Happily, 
and therein lay the element of comedy in a tragic situation, public opinion did not go very far. For many people, most people, did not know Oscar Wilde by sight. How should they? Again, the dimensions of his crime were extravagantly out of proportion with those of his claims to personal identification. Notorious in every corner of Europe, in the little French town, only a few hours' journey from London, he was almost unknown by sight. <coughs> it was his fate, too, to learn the distinction between friend and friend among the few who recognized him. A man who knew and saw him as he came down the street is said to have crossed over to avoid the uncomfortable alternative of cutting him. Henry Harland took an independent view of a situation cut and dried enough for most people. Here was a famous man of letters in a defenseless position, infamous, oh yes, but why not be kind to him when kindness meant a great deal more than could be uttered if imagined? A popular lady novelist, too eager to exhibit a tenderness for fallen greatness, invited Oscar Wilde to dinner. And when he came, pressed wine upon him with an appeal for admiration of its cheapness as well as of its quality. How much did it cost, asked Oscar. And on being told the price was only a franc a bottle, you gave too much for it, he is supposed to have said gravely as he replaced his glass on the table. The hostess had cheapened her own hospitality, stretched broadness of mind past its own confines into the region of vulgarity. Oscar Wilde knew it and snubbed her. Of that dinner party, nothing but this Sally has survived. It was otherwise in the case of Harland. He ordered dinner in the Faisan d'Or, in a little room over a confectioner's shop in the Grande Rue near the harbour. I had been introduced to Oscar Wilde the day before at the Café des Tribunaux, and I was still laughing inwardly at his comic expostulation with a member of the colonial office, who was also of the party, over the shape of Australia in the Atlas. He had persisted in regarding it as a blot on civilization and was urgent in his appeal to have the shape altered. I remember that the civil servant was both perplexed and mildly offended. The fact was, he too was a wit, accustomed to a circle of admirers, and unprepared to surrender his claim to occupy the centre of any circle without a contest. And there was no contest. That Oscar Wilde must be the centre of the circle was made at once obvious as any axiom in Euclid. He spoke, whether in jest or in earnest, from the elevation of an established preeminence. And from ridicule of Australia's outline, he passed, according to the requirements of topics which he steered rather than launched, to a kind of sermon on Ruskin's pity the poor, and to an impassioned plea 
for the immortality of Meredith. Nothing but beauty has real life, and beauty is imperishable. But it is not of this first impression of Oscar Wilde as a speaker that I set out to write. And I come back to our dinner at the Golden Pheasant, at that moment when, after the broken snatches of conversation pursued as an accompaniment to eating and drinking, Harland surprised me by asking a question about the poem which he knew Oscar Wilde had composed in prison. What was it like? Could he quote any lines from it? <clears throat> I remember the preliminary evasions which met his inquiry. To me, the request of our host was charged with danger. The range of conviviality, until then so lightly held, became suddenly tense. Surely this was indiscreet. The recency of Oscar Wilde's prison experience was argument enough for supposing him reluctant to commit any account of it to the light of even this tiny publicity. I could not imagine at all how, in such suffering as must have been his, he could have given expression to his feelings in a work of art. In the composition of some rhapsody remote from what he was at the time enduring, he might perhaps have tried to escape from sorrow. But even then, the pain of that effort must linger. It was like asking a man still striving to free himself from the effects of a nightmare to revive its horror by recapitulation of the main features. Thus to myself I reasoned. And I was wrong, quite wrong. I know now that Oscar Wilde demurred only in order to ascertain the amount of artistic sympathy on which he could count from his listeners. Of course, we were loud in our encouragement. Harland knew acutely what he was doing when he asked. But none of us knew what pleasure and what pain awaited us in hearing from the lips of the poet in these circumstances, and for the first time, the ballad of Reading Jail. He did not wear his scarlet coat, for blood and wine are red, and blood and wine were on his hands, when they found him with the dead, the poor dead woman whom he loved and murdered in her bed. Relax, I'm not going to say the whole thing. <clears throat> I know now that he, uh, Oscar was very willing. It was perfectly convincing and it was perfectly told, the tale of terror in the clear, forcible, suave language. The modulation of the voice, too, was perfect, and so was the punctuation. The time allowed for pausing after comma, semicolon, colon, and full stop. In self-defense, as it were, one had hoped for something fantastical, rhapsodical. But unconsciously, one had assumed that the burden of the poem would be the sufferings of the poet. So it was, but a double pain suffused the narrative of these sufferings because they embraced the pain, the pity, the despair felt for a comrade in crime. 
the trooper who had murdered a woman and was to die for it. It was as if on the brink of offering compassion to an outcast, you had been taken unawares into a new region of sorrow by the simple request, listen and pity another. Now, as I read the poem once more, it is only here and there that the inflection of Oscar's voice rises to anything like precision in my memory. The winking lights of the sober little room in which we had dined, the eager faces of the other listeners, the grave figure of the poet himself, swaying slightly, rhythmically, I inclined to think, in the effort of recapitulation, the inward rapture in which he seemed to be held, to judge from eyes which looked nowhere in the particular scene, all this shapes itself easily in my mind. From an intimate memory of Henry Harland, as I write, I can supply characteristic interjections of, oh, how good, and I see his bright look grow brighter in eyes that danced at the mere whisper of an excuse for vivacity. But except for the shape of the room, which was long and rather narrow, I can recall little of photographic detail in our surroundings. Those were the days of impressions, and my main impression, swollen almost to ludicrous dimensions from that made upon me by my meeting with Oscar Wilde the day before, was one of the discrepancy between my idea of what he would be like and what in reality he was. My notion of an ex-convict had been primitive, the lineal descendant of some stage figure seen perhaps as a boy with all a boy's fervid belief in the reality of sensational villains. I half consciously expected the shaven pate, the hunted look, the sunken head, almost the traces of handcuffs on the wrists. And I saw before me a graceful gentleman in evening dress, utterly devoid of one of the peculiar marks by which conventional minds think to distinguish such criminals. I looked in vain for some trace of recent physical suffering in the speaker, and yet not absolutely in vain, for in those eyes indeed was a look of inextinguishable fatigue. I think the ballad, as he recited it to us, was not quite complete, although it occupied a considerable time in the telling. I remember too that on that evening he told us several prose stories about a pope who had never existed, about a poet and the people of a rivered city with a little gray bridge, or was that on some other occasion, about the belated hands of a clock introduced to illustrate a favorite theory of his, that you cannot repeat an emotion. What put an end for me to this experience was the growing consciousness that the dancers were gathering at the casino. It was a ball night, and we were at the wrong end of the Grand Rue for reaching that chandeliered paradise in a shorter time, as might with certainty be held consistent with the hope of finding dancers 
or a dancer disengaged. What? Leave Oscar Wilde at his wisest and wittiest for a mere dance in a heated room? The thought was not uttered. I see only Harland raise an eyebrow. But Oscar, abandoning the train of his reflections, is quick to understand. Has he not himself but a few minutes ago said, it is sweet to dance to violins when love and life are fair. To dance to flutes, to dance to lutes is delicate and rare. Out of the long room, I stumble down a narrow dark staircase into the air of the street. It is over. The strange experience, so swiftly lived, so slow to revive in a memory. The rest is quick running in dancing pumps with a care to avoid running gutters along the high street of the old French town, perhaps a glimpse of the cathedral of Saint-Jacques by moonlight, of Condé seated, seated at the marble table of a cafe on the way, the fitful glare of an orchestra traveling through the glazed apse of the ballroom to the turnstiles at the casino gates, then a crowd and the hunt for the dancer. Well, they are all dead. Condor sits no more at the cafe table. The light has gone out of Harlan's eyes. Oscar Wilde has died above his means in the cinquième of a Paris hotel. Beardsley is dead too. What began with an attempt to recall a festival has ended, you see, with a funeral procession that winds its relentless way into my brain. You asked, it is true, only for the lights and not for the skull at the feast, but memory once set moving will run its own course. And so nodding sable plumes are the image on which my mind and yours must rest after its journey back to that summer evening 13 years ago. Thank you.